Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1445, entitled, As You Value Your Life, Stay Away From The Moor. <laughs> In this case, the Alan Moore. Our co-host, Megan McHugh, is off on shore leave for a few weeks. Our best to her during her R&R. So, our podcast title for today's public holiday show is Spotter Pod 2. And speaking of podcasting, our podcaster Alice Savage takes a well-deserved bow today and moves on to further adventures. I and Zero G would like to thank Alice very much indeed for all of the work that Alice has done getting the show content edited and posted in a timely fashion. One of the many always appreciated volunteer class acts that help keep Zero G and Space Station Triple R flying. Thank you very much, Alice. Radio. Now on today's show, I'm going to get well and truly bogged down in the bayous as we cross the moor, which is to say the Allen Moor, to explore the British writer's iconic 1980 run on DC slash Vertigo's horror comic book Swamp Thing. And not to not to mention his fellow waders through sophisticated suspense, as the subtitle of the book read. Artists Stephen Bissett, John Tottleben, Rick Veitch and Alfredo Alcala. We're also going to take, well, maybe have a thwip around that spectacular swinging animated sequel, Spider-Man, across this. Now, it is perhaps by arcane coincidence that the two swampy movies from 1982 and 1989 can be said, but only if you're really careless and have your tongue firmly planted in cheek, to... Bracket Alan Moore's 1983 to 1987 run on the DC slash Vertigo Swamp Thing comic book. Now, there have been waves of monsters slogging their way out of swamps and or muck heaps. The fetid wellspring is often interchangeable across fiction for yonks as well as a whole bunch of even older Illusions and illusions and will-o'-the-wisps, you know, bunyips and Mrs. Grendel, uh, Grendel's mum, that is, the Beowulf monsters, um, you know, even the, into the, uh, I suppose you could call it um, cryptozoology areas of the Groot slang, which is said to inhabit freshwater lakes in South Africa. <laughs> I am Groot slang. Uh, the Romans and the Greeks had a particular hydra, which Hercules, of course, did to death in a swamp at some stage. Myself, I actually rather like swamps, as or as we often call them now, wetlands. I think that they're marvellous places, quite peaceful 
and, you know, the sort of place I actually don't mind hanging out, yeah, in an Adams Family kind of way. I do wonder if these sorts of things have a, a kind of uh, a connection with um, bog people, which is to say uh, human beings who have died by natural or other means in or around swamps and bogs and mires and moors and marshes and so on and have then been preserved in them. Finding one of those years or decades later would be actually kind of a sort of a funky experience, I reckon, and would lead to all sorts of connections and legends and myths appearing. But in, in fiction, there's the Heap, who appeared in Air Fighter comics in 1942, and indeed gets a nod in the Alan Moore Swamp Thing comic book run, pastiche maker that he is. Uh, DC has other swamp spawn monsters as well, Solomon Grundy, for example, uh, and Marvel has a pile of them, including the Glob and the equally monstrously iconic aforementioned Man-Thing, who has shambolically gotten around for centuries. So, you know, some of the other ones. Uh, Theodore Sturgeon has a classic muck monster story in 1940, logically named It, with a big screaming exclamation mark, whom Marvel would later consider but pass over as a character since they already had their man thing. I can remember um, The Spanish Moss Murders, an episode of Kolshak, the Night Stalker in 1974, where you had basically a Spanish Moss-style monster, not too far from the title. Uh, I think they actually came from um, uh, Louisiana Bayou originally, so, you know, fits into the biography of Swamp Thing because that's his neck of the woods too. And, of course, there was that swamp monster um, that the It character took on as a form to kill Eddie in the uh, 1986 novel It. So, yeah, lots of things that run around there. You know, there's even a teenage mutant ninja turtle beastie, Bog the Swamp Demon, dishonourable mention to the Toxic Avenger in 1984, Toxie, you know that series of films, first in the uh, the franchise as it were, you know, all his sort of coming together from chemicals and that sort of thing, uh, you know, so there's quite a bit of backstory in there and things that have sort of flowed down the drain along the way or de- across the levee as it were and this brings us to 1971, where Len Wine, the writer, and artist Bernie Wrightson put together the Swamp Thing character in House of Secrets in 1971. That was a standalone horror story. Uh, name, apparently, according to Wine, was uh, <laughs> conjured up or cooked up. Every time people were asking him about what he was working on, he said, oh, I'm working on that Swamp Thing. And that's where the name came from. Not that... Not that complicated, really. Uh, now, this comic had some ebb tides as it went along and came and got, went and eventually fell into the hands of Alan Moore, that sort of enfant terrible who would go on to give us Watchmen and From Hell and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and V for Vendetta and Miracle Man and Albion and so many other iconic and amazing properties ranged across the comic book world. Uh, reinventing tropes, or indeed sometimes just drilling down into the obvious part of them and fleshing them out a bit more. 
So at that stage, he'd been working on stories for comic books since the 1970s, fanzines and magazines, etc. Um, you know, Marvel in the British version, uh, Doctor Who Weekly. Marvel had a whole bunch of, um, of titles that they were running over in the UK. He did backup comic strips in 1980 and 1981, which featured Cybermen and Time Lords and Autons. Oh my. Um, there was a monochrome uh, piece in there. David Lloyd did that as the artist working with Moore. And he went on to collaborate with Moore on V for Vendetta in the Warrior comic books in 1982. Moore did some Star Wars and some Captain Britain work. And uh, in the Captain Britain one, he actually invented the, uh, the numeration for the Marvel comic book universe now known as 616, one of many in there. Marvel Multiverse. Of course, Moore went on to work for um, IPC Publishing House, 2000 AD, you know, Robusters and his Future Shocks, Rogue Trooper, The Ballad of Halo Jones, quite famously and iconically again as well, and he's working for uh, Warrior and uh, Warpsmith too. So he worked on a lot of DC comics as well. Um, eventually, uh, Green Lantern, Superman, Batman, The Killing Joke, of course, another famous one. Uh, Amiga men and this brings us to the saga of Swamp Thing we are talking about Alan Moore's run on the Swamp Thing comic book from 1983 to 1987 so lots of issues there all collected in various formats online and of course you know DC has their own uh, online subscription service so you can download comic books to your app on your device or whatever and imagine doing that though if you have a little wristwatch or something like that it doesn't sound like it would be too much fun to try and get that into into play there but nevertheless you know you can give it a shot and the um, the whole concept of comic books being condensed down into, or collected I suppose is probably the better word, collected into graphic novel editions has been applied to this too, the saga of the swamp thing, six volumes, so there's another way you can get into it, but you know, more on that perhaps later, uh, we're just wandering through the swamp thing, or staggering through it, or as they say, so the... Um, the idea of it is, oh, of course, you could always go out and collect the individual comic books from back in the day, which would cost you a small fortune now, of course, but maybe not so, <laughs> such a great idea with there. So, okay, yeah. this is the saga of the Swamp Thing. As we were saying before, uh, we explained how uh, Len Wein, the writer and uh, artist Bernie Wrightson, created this character back in 1971. Some of the antecedents and the, the fellow travellers through the bog uh, we've also explored. And now we're looking at this particular comic book springing out of the mind of Alan Moore and a bunch of artists, including Steve Bissett, John Tottleben, Rick Veitch, uh, Alfredo, our Alcala, uh, and others too, because there's a plethora of people working through this. I like to riff through the pages of these things as I'm talking about them. Uh, so, of course, these in the collected versions, they all include um, uh, cover versions um, of the original plates that they used. No alternate covers in these, though, so I don't think they were quite was back into that back then as they uh, they are now. Gosh, the the 
the price on these things, 75 cents, April 1984, takes me back. <laughs> it's a long time. Now, this is interesting for me. Uh, look, although I did have some exposure to some of Alan Moore's comics in 2000 AD, back in the day, uh, mostly I never saw any of his work at all, not Swamp Thing, not... Um, uh, not Watchmen uh, or any of those things. I did start reading his stuff more with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen uh, and uh, Albion and so on and, and had some exposure to Moore's work via the distorting medium of film, you know, things like um, Watchmen movie and um, and From Hell with um, Johnny Depp, I think, and uh, V for Vendetta and... And so on, you know, some of these things did percolate through my environment, um, kind of being filtered like sludge through the swamp roots and moss. Not all of them were happy experiences, shall we say. Although I did have a soft spot, not in a swamp, but uh, for the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen film, even though it's very wobbly in lots of places, I didn't actually mind them going a bit more out there and having uh, Mina Harker as an actual vampire in that. Although, you know, at the same time I can say I do love um, Alan Moore's original creation of that character or recreation of that character as uh, being a very fearsome young woman and being able to sort of cast affluence on people without actually being a vampire. I thought that was quite subtly done. Anyway, back to Swamp Thing. So basically it revolves around a character called Alec Holland, or at least that's what he used to be known as. Uh, you know, so he's a scientist um, trying to create this bio-restorative formula working out in the uh, Louisiana area. And, you know, there's becomes like corporate and evil villainy that, of course, comes in and messes things up for him. There's a whole thing about them bombing his lab. And I don't mean his dog, but I mean his laboratory where he's working on this formula. And he gets doused in the formula and set on fire by the explosion and staggers out into the swamp and collapses into the swamp and emerges as the Swamp Thing. You know, this is how it works in comic books. You get bitten by a radioactive spider. You get bonked on the head by a can of radioactive ooze, you know, all that. and before you can say Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Daredevil, there you have an origin. And so this is what happens to poor old Alec Holland. Now, the problem with that is that uh, when... Well, not a problem, actually. One of the things that Alan Moore does extremely well, or did for comic books back in the day, was exploring the tropes as if they had actually happened in the real world. And so this is actually the essence of science fiction too. Uh, you take an idea and you thoroughly get into it. It doesn't always happen immediately in comic books, but quite often over the years, especially with characters like Superman and Batman and so on, you get to see all of the facets and all of the angles and they do thoroughly explore it. Well, Alan would always just go straight in, rubber boots and all, or, or, uh, or wellies or galoshes, straight into the... Uh, into the, the nuggety goodness of that sort of idea. So, you know, in Watchmen we have the, the evil that might be done by superheroes as well as the good. And also um, the whole characterization of um, creatures in the uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. What does it mean to be long-lived and immortal? Very complicated stuff. So, this is... a. Um, a remarkable series of comic books, ostensibly a horror 
series. And make no mistake there, there is a lot of horrific content in there, all filtered through Mr Moore's experience and imagination. Um, some of the things that happen in this are actually based upon things that uh, he encountered along the way, not swamp things or so on, but... Um, uh, for example, uh, a woman who was um, mentally manipulated by a deranged survivalist. Um, something similar happened in his family history, or at least in amongst his acquaintances. So, you know, he's pulling things from uh, real life to put down on the page. Now, look, there are some familiar tropes in here, but this is like the 80s uh, when this came out originally. And so some of the things in here... I was kind of seeing for the first time when I um, re- read them in relatively recent times, but Moore had been pushing these concepts for a while. You know, as I was saying before, the reality of a superhero or thus empowered character, how that would play out in the real world. Not very well in the case of Miracle Man, for example, or uh, The Watchman, in, in certainly uh, in some cases there. You know, those moments where he just flips the trope on its head, for example, in uh, Watchmen, where the arch-villain is narrating his cunning plan and uh, and then stops and says, well, you know, obviously I've already enacted this to the gathered superheroes. I'm not going to let you have a chance to stop me. I did this 20 minutes ago. You know, that kind of thing, flipping the, the, the trope. Uh, in this case... Well, you know, this is a, uh, a story about a, a swamp thing, a swamp monster, and, you know, trotting along in the bayous and of Louisiana. And Moore has actually taken the swamp thing character and pushed him beyond what he was originally. He is now an avatar of the green, which is to say the earth and all things flora as opposed to fauna. And what he actually does with the character is, instead of it just being a man transformed into a swamp monster, uh, what he actually has is the man's consciousness is actually transplanted into vegetable matter. So it's no longer actually a human being. He is actually a plant with a human's mindset, amongst other things. And... That's the interesting concept here. So Moore actually explores that in a science fiction way. When I say these are horror comics, yes, as I said, lots of horrific things in them, but it also reminds me a little bit of um, Lovecraft's, H.P. Lovecraft's approach to horror in that it's very science fictional at all stages. And that is, of course, because the origin of um, man of Swamp Thing, <laughs> easy to get them confused, of Swamp Thing is basically uh, scientific in kind of pseudo-scientific fashion of having a, a formula that um, sort of uh, alters the, the character. So, you know, it is a science fiction story to start with. So scientific horror in lots of ways, which doesn't mean that it isn't absolutely terrifying at all stages throughout the thing. So, okay, these tropes are played out across if you happen to get the uh, the six-volume collection. Let's, let's stick with that as a as a touchstone, because it's, it's, it's probably one of the more easily accessible ones. You know, you could pop into um, uh, All-Star Comics in, uh, in Melbourne or Minotaur here in Melbourne or, or Galaxy in, um, in uh, Sydney or, you know, any of the other ones. That, uh, the very many local comic stores that you have in our vast domain and wherever else. So, 
in book one, he kind of tidies up, that is to say, more in company with the artist, tidies up leftovers from previous story arcs. And he pays them respect. He's not just sort of cutting up, cutting knots, entanglements and loose ends. He's fixing it all into, into place as the structure that the, the character comes from. Now, Alan Moore is a first-class pastiche maker in the league of Quentin Tarantino or Philippe Jose Farmer or Kim Newman in the, uh, in the more current sense, which means that he loves taking historical fictional characters and putting them into context of whatever he happens to be writing with. So there is a, because this is a DC Vertigo comic book, he has a brush with the Justice League and Batman and uh, Etrigan, the uh, the demon from um, King Arthur's Camelot. Um, so in a way, this felt to me like an, an early sort of take on um, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So they these other characters pop up. Batman actually pops up in quite a, a big way because, uh, well, we'll get to that in, in, in a moment. Um, so, okay, so they're really getting into the whole idea of, of Alec Holland's swamp thing, double identity now. He even has sweet potato-like tubers, which sounds weird, that sort of pop off, pop off and drop onto the ground. And if you happen to eat them, they cause hallucinations or perhaps connections with the green is a better way of putting it. So this... Series has strong, strong environmental themes, heavily rooted, as it were, within that concept, far more than, uh, say, uh, Poison Ivy, and that comes up later on in the uh, in the story, would have with her um, penchant for being a botanical supervillain. Uh, I appreciate the fact that Moore and the artists really work hard to portray the swamp as a beautiful place, so long as it's unspoiled by man's murderous intent and toxic pollutants. And those are often interlinked in the stories too, which of course means that we get some old-fashioned retribution and karma for villains who enter Swamp Thing's domain with evil in their hearts and minds. There's another mega arc within these stories, and there are lots and lots of those, and I can't do it justice here on Zero-G today because it's just too much content within them to thoroughly explore. I can just lead you gently by the hand to them and say, go and read this stuff, watch it if you can, um, in any way, shape or form, even if that's on a a digital platform. Uh, There's a sprawling battle between the darkness and the light that is actually really quite impressively staged within the book, and you will find that uh, there's so much within that particular thing. It's an entire work of art in itself, uh, pulling in all sorts of characters from DC's mystical canon of people. People like um, Zatanna, the magician, uh, and her father. Um, you know, the dead man character too. Uh, John Constantine, you may be familiar with his own movie franchise more well more or less there uh, and you know so many of these other characters that, that just sort of flick up into being later on uh, in one of the later books he eschews horror well there's still horrific elements in it but it's full f- off-world science fiction when Swamp Thing is uh, catapulted out into the darkness of space and it's very Lovecraftian in, in a sense there um, 
where you know he, he's out there in, in hugely science fictional context. Um, his consciousness is flung out to the stars. Um, he goes to a world which we've seen before. If you are a, a comic book fan of a certain vintage, the Ran planet uh, that Alan Adam Strange is able to flick over to in a sort of Edgar Rice Burroughs, John Carter of Mars fashion, um, where he spends time being a a hero with a (laughs) jetpack and a finned helmet and a ray gun and all that sort of stuff. And, of course, a a local princess as well. Um, Now, I can remember reading those comic books a long time ago and then to see the character suddenly brought into uh, a more 20th century, as it were, in 1980s, canon here it's it's an amazing sort of thing to to see and of course more thoroughly places those tropes that came with that character that strong right arm of an earthman sort of thing uh, in 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 a more modern sort of context and this is one of alan moore's constant type things he often he's writing against the comic book characters and trying to remind us that a lot of these characters are deeply fascist uh, you're not supposed to barrack for Judge Dredd. Not really. He's a, a fascist monster. Uh, and a lot of that is just glossed over by the casual comic fans sometimes. A lot of us do get the actual satire in it, but my gosh, you don't embrace these people as role models. And Moore is actually quite solid on that. Although I must admit, I think he has more of a soft spot for Swamp Thing than for some of the uh, the traditional superheroes. Now, you will also find that there's a lot about um, Abigail Cable. Now, she is, uh, or Abby is, um, Swamp Thing calls her. She is the daughter of Anton Arcane, a rogue man's mad scientist. Sorry, the niece of Anton Arcane. He's her evil uncle. Uh, and he does get his comeuppance in... Um, these books too, although he's been killed in uh, previous um, arcs of Swamp Thing. These guys never really die, but in this, he is in hell. His head is being used as a football in hell. It's not a good look for him, but you know, absolutely vile character. But away from him, his, uh, his niece Abigail, um, she is uh, an amazing, uh, I suppose, uh, uh, the opposite number of of Swamp Thing's um, Earth avatar. She's kind of like an Earth goddess in a way um, without actually having any powers. And She hooks up with him quite early in the Swamp Thing stories and here she is still his partner. And they have this lovely, delicate relationship. Um, Of course, it's not just platonic. uh, It's spiritual and physical and all sorts of other levels as well. Um, And the real-world implication of that is that it uh, gets them into trouble with the moral majority, and she ends up being imprisoned in all places. Gotham City, <laughs> which leads to Swamp Thing invading Gotham and turning it into a, depending upon your perspective, a green hell. Or is it a Garden of Eden? And that's one of the things that Alan Moore unpicks quite well in the story, the idea that uh, things can be both and neither. Look, there is so much in these books to discuss. Um, you know, and I can I can open them at random and read you just some just some lines from it. 
neatly tying the loose ends of self-fulfilling prophecy into the unfathomable knot of paradox, I deposited the intruder back at the point where I had noted the chrono fracture earlier. Caught by surprise in an event loop, the staggered and barely conscious intelligence once more sizzled down through my stratosphere while bewildered lights danced across my displays, searching for a visible form where there was none. Everything went as before, the shock of impact, the almost subliminal first glimpse of his features, the eerie moment when he revealed himself as a phantom, diving bodiless into the cold, oil-scented sea of clockwork, seeking refuge in a fresh-grown body. So this is actually a passage from one of the science fiction parts of the Swamp Thing saga, where his consciousness is racing through the cosmos and gets sort of shanghaied by this alien machine entity, a Borg-like creation. And he is um, basically pulled into this in order to impregnate this machine and create a new sort of techno-child. And this is seriously out there stuff. Uh, And it's And I haven't mentioned too much of the illustrations at the moment, but this particular story, I thought, uh, really, really gives you a a look at the range and breadth of the artwork within this whole thing. And this story, by the way, is called Loving the Alien, with a nod to the David Bowie song. And John Tottleben did the artwork for this one. And what what he's done is actually something very much like um, Jack Kirby would do. They've created these sort of montages out of real-world objects and then artified them, comic book sort of versions of them. With um, So you'll see like a camera lens that's been that's uh, transmorphed into a kind of a, a great art escape piece. Um, you know, this is a... Like, it did, does remind me a bit of Jack Kirby sort of thing uh, back then. But that's just one of the many different styles encompassed by this. And, you know, all of the artists with their colour palettes and well, the colourists there as well, uh, and the letterers too, because, of course, as I just said before, Alan Moore is a very, very wordy gentleman. So the idea of him having huge blocks of text, a big challenge to letterers in the comic book format, um, are actually explored in incredible depth here. So, you know, not quite as much as in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen where you actually have a story in text form uh, inserted within the uh, the story, within the piece at stages, but you know, kind of similar to that too. So, yeah, that's a lot of the uh, the science fiction stuff occurs in book number six, and that's an amazing sort of thing in itself. Um, the, the Batman uh, colonisation of Gotham City by plants uh, is more of a book five kind of thing, and that leads into the events of number six. Now, I love this stuff. This is this is really good, and I'm gl- so glad that I uh, managed to catch up with this in any format, you know, online or, or, or print. Uh, it's just one of the, the 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 roots of modern comic books. This one in particular. So many awards given to it, and quite justly so. I love the fact that the the artists also grok what's going on here, and they're always careful to, uh, to portray the, the swamp locations as not particularly sinister. A lot of the times they're, working, they're depicted in broad daylight, and they're just little havens. At other times, well, yes, they do form the backdrop to some, to pretty, some pretty hinky horror as well. 
Uh, look, again, too many things to talk about with this. I, I don't even need to uh, go into the many, many spin-offs of the Swamp Thing the television live action. Actually, I think the, uh, the the recent television series, the 2019 one, is um, is a bit better in uh, in, in its um, treatment of the the Swamp Thing character because it has more room to breathe as a whole series instead of just a, a one-off movie and they take it a, a lot more seriously. Um, you know, of course, Swamp Thing has shown up in a lot of DC animation. Uh, Mark Hamill has even voiced him in the Justice League action series and there have been, as I said, two films in the 80s, a um, bit of a, a television series in the 1990s and um, that actually had this a bit of a, a crossover there. Uh, the stuntman actor who played um, Swampy in that, um, uh, Dick Durock, was also in the, the two movies before. I wonder if it was just like, well, there's this one guy who can play Swamp Thing and nobody else can wear the rubber in this case. So, yeah, um, I would highly recommend these. Get into them. Helen Moore's saga of the Swamp Thing so complex, so nuanced. These are the pinnacle of, or a pinnacle at least, because that's the way it is with um, with great art. You can always see another mountain range from them of science fiction, horror, comic books. Alan Moore's saga of the Swamp Thing with a whole bunch of artists, including the great Stephen Bissett, John Tottleburn, Rick Veitch and Alfredo Alcala and a large number of unsung letterers and editors. But the good thing about them, if you if you read the um, collected graphic novels, is there are extensive uh, forewords explaining all of this right at the start so you can get a good sense of the, the history behind it and the people behind it too. I got a bit lost in the swamps today, did I? I think I have. I don't think there's a whole lot of time left to talk about Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, the sequel to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which not entirely kicked off the current fad for multiversal stories on the big screen. But, you know, it was there as well as everything, <laughs> everywhere, all at once. Um, so, you know, that's the whole kettle of universes to be opened in future on Zero G. I have been to see the film. It runs 140 minutes. 140 minutes of kaleidoscopic controlled detonation. It's an amazing piece, even for a Spider-Man film. Excellent, excellent, excellent. The main riff on it is that the first film had other Spider-People incarnations of the Peter Parker character popping into the Spider-World of Miles Morales, who was the Spider-Man of his particular Earth. This one has him venturing out into the Spider-Verse, across the Spider-Verse, as the title says, to have a variety of adventures, including revisiting the character of Spider-Gwen or Spider-Woman, uh, voiced by Haley Steinfeld. Oh, by the way, I've also been watching a show called Deadlock on Amazon Prime, which is amazingly Tasmanian feminist gothic detective fiction. It is weird enough to be zero-G fodder, and we'll get into that at some stage in the future. So check that out, Deadlock. Not Deadlock, Deadlock, as in the lake. And that's on Amazon Prime at the moment. It is not safe for work. If you're listening to it in any public context, you will probably want to have headphones on because there's lots of 
sweary words in there. Looking at you, Detective Redcliffe. <laughs> That's it for Zero G for today. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.